you're ever looking for a good book to read and aren't sure where to turn next, one resource that I really do commend to you is Beacon Press. It's our own UU publishing house. Each year, they just publish incredible material, including they are uh, the major publisher of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's works. And in 2018, Beacon Press published a book in memory of the 50th anniversary of the death of King. It was titled Redemption, Martin Luther King Jr.'s Last 31 Hours. I originally planned to preach a sermon inspired by that book two years ago for on the occasion of the 50th anniversary, but a confluence of scheduling complications prevented it. I am, however, grateful for the opportunity on this MLK weekend to revisit this significant topic. Why 31 hours, you may be asking. That's the length of time from when Dr. King's plane landed in Memphis, Tennessee, around 9 a.m. on April 3, 1968, until the time of his assassination the next day at 6.01 p.m. Compared to his final days, most people, as Gerard mentioned earlier, are much more familiar with the earlier years of King's career. In 1925, when he was that 26-year-old, newly-minted Ph.D. from Boston University and had been recently called to serve as the minister of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. He then quickly and unexpectedly skyrocketed onto the national stage through his leadership in the Montgomery bus boycotts in, in December of 55. But what I want to talk more about is 13 years later, in 1968, when King was building up to the toughest challenge of his life, the Poor People's Campaign. But that Poor People's Campaign, that wasn't scheduled to start until May, and King was in Memphis in April for the sanitation workers' strike. The strike had begun on February 12th prior to King's involvement, and he arrived in Memphis for the first of three times on March 18th, more than a month into the strike. He had been invited to speak at a rally supporting the strike. Another 10 days later, on March 28th, King flew to Memphis a second time to lead a nonviolent march, again, in support of this sanitation workers' strike. But that march, unlike many, so many that King had led in the past, ignited into a violent uprising almost as soon as that began. Windows were smashed, many downtown stores in Memphis were looted, and police responded with clubs and tear gas and guns. Four looters were shot, one fatally. Five police officers were hospitalized, and about 60 other people received medical care for their injuries. This isn't a story that as many people know as the I Have a Dream speech. King was devastated, and frankly, his reputation and the, his career was at risk. He had developed this track record as a leader who could maintain a nonviolent approach to civil disobedience. And if he became unable to control the crowds, remember, this is a time when like, the Black Panthers are rising, right? And these other ways of creating social change. His plans would be in jeopardy for the Poor People's Campaign if he couldn't control the crowds, which was the next key part of his plan to move our world closer to beloved community. Many of his advisors urged him, just cut your losses in Memphis and focus on making the Poor People's Campaign a success. But King insisted on returning to Memphis on April 3rd to hold another march and to do everything in his power to keep it nonviolent. 
It can be difficult today to appreciate just how dire King's situation was 52 years ago. Here in our time, we know that there's a statue of Dr. King on the National Mall. His birthday is a federal holiday, and many people, well, at least many white people, look back nostalgically on a selective memory of King that primarily centers on the final section of his 1963 I Have a Dream speech, forgetting that it was actually the march on Washington for jobs and freedom. This perspective of focusing only on that I Have a Dream speech obscures the much more radical King that was actually present all along and that King was revealing much more publicly in his final years. Five years after his I Have a Dream speech, three years after his last major success, the helping catalyze the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, uh, here's a little more about the actual situation on the ground in April of 1968. The book that King had published is really an excellent book. The book he had published six months earlier, Where Will We Go From Here? Chaos or Community? That book sold poorly. Reviewers panned it. For the first time in a decade, his name did not appear on the Gallup poll of the annual list of most admired Americans. Following the riots in Memphis, his name was finally back in the spotlight, but only to extremely negative publicity. In response, for a brief period, King sank into a depression that was worse than any he had ever experienced. And relatedly, it's worth recalling how hard he had been pushing himself and for how long. At least once annually, for the past four years, King's doctors had ordered him to stay for days on bed rest because of extreme exhaustion. To give you an example of why, I'll limit myself just to the week preceding his first um, speech in Memphis on March 18th. This is fairly representative of the schedule the King kept. In that week alone, he barnstormed from one small airport to another in a chartered twin-engine Cessna 40. He delivered 35 speeches that week on stops from Michigan to California. Here's the schedule of one single day. It sounds a lot like what a musician on tour would do in a week or two. And King did this in one day. Starting in early morning, he crisscrossed a large swath of Mississippi. He spoke at small African-American churches in Batesville, Marks, Clarksdale, Greenwood, Granada, and Laurel, finally reaching Hattiesburg in a bed close to midnight. On many days, he hardly slept. King could have skipped the struggle in Memphis, but he felt that this sanitation worker's strike, it was just too close to the heart of what he was trying to do with the Poor People's Campaign. This plight of 1,300 Memphis sanitation workers spoke to him, and it was at that intersection of race and class. Again, like the I Have a Dream speech actually was, it was the march on Washington for jobs and freedom. This sanitation worker strike was at the intersection of uh, systemic racism that was at the root of a conflict in which every single street-level sanitation worker was black and every single office-working supervisor was white. And classism, which allowed a situation to continue in which those street-level workers did not earn a living wage sufficient to support their families. As King would emphasize in his March 18th speech on their behalf, it is a crime for people to live in this rich nation and receive a starvation wage. Or to quote another of King's favorite sayings, what does it profit a man to be able to sit at an integrated lunch counter if he doesn't earn enough money to buy a hamburger and a cup of coffee? 
And just as the Civil Rights Movement had helped catalyze the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, King's dream was that the Poor People's Campaign would help create the political will to pass serious anti-poverty legislation. Now, there was, of course, President Johnson's war on poverty that he had launched in 1965, but that was funded at the rate of about $2.4 billion a year that got paired increasingly down. It was, uh, at the, in 68, it was, it was at $1.8 billion a year because the cost of the Vietnam War kept cutting into the war on poverty. King's dream was to fund it at the level of like 10 or $12 billion a year, radically more. And here we can begin to see why King used to speak of racism, materialism, and militarism as the triple threats, the three things that most consistently kept holding us back from actually being able to build the um, beloved community, the racism that falsely kept us apart, the materialism that misprioritized our, uh, he used to say, that would take um, you know, necessities from the masses to give luxuries to the classes and militarism that kept us from funding social programs domestically because all of our money was going overseas. King's plan for the Poor People's Campaign was to set up tent cities on the National Mall, filled up with poor people from all over this country, and to use those tent cities as staging grounds for sending nonviolent protests into the streets of our nation's capitals, into the streets, the parks, and office buildings. In his words, they will plague Washington as long as it takes to convince our leaders to prioritize anti-poverty legislation. But here's the truth. King didn't actually expect the Poor People's Campaign to work. He confided in those closest to him that he expected the powers that be, President and Congress, to put him in jail. Uh, King was told, and if we get locked up this time, it's not going to be 30 or 60 days. We're going to get three to five years. King replied, well, that would be just the right amount of time. We would be really strong enough spiritually coming out of jail to really transform this nation. He was ready to take that suffering on himself um, to try to transform this country. If we're honest about Dr. King's dream, it's important to be clear that he was not a capitalist. As a minister, his understanding of what following the example of Jesus actually meant included a form of democratic socialism, which in the Christian tradition is called the social gospel. Dr. King lived out those values at a significant cost to his family. Honoraria from his speaking engagements poured in at the rate of $200,000 or more a year. That's the equivalent of $1.4 million a year today. But he kept only a tiny fraction for himself. The rest he diverted to the SCLC Treasury, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He allowed himself an income at that time of ten dollars to $12,000 a year. That's the equivalent of about $88,000 today. He donated all of his $54,000 in Nobel Prize money, that's about $400,000 today, despite Coretta's strong urging. She would tell him, Martin, let's save some of that for the children's education, but he gave all of it away. There's so much more to say about Dr. King, but I want to be sure that we get to both his final moments and his legacy for us today. On Thursday, April 4th, 1968, just a few minutes before 6 o'clock p.m., the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. stepped out of room 306 at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. 
stepped out to the second story balcony. The temperature was in the mid-50s and King was dressed in his usual dark suit. Uh, he had on a conservative yellow and black tie. He was preparing to go to a party at the home of the Reverend Billy Kyles, a local minister in Memphis who had long been an ally in the civil rights struggle. There had been some conflict in the preceding days between King and the Reverend Jesse Jackson. At that time, Jesse Jackson was 26 years old. He was the same, Jackson was the same age that King had been when he had first started out at the Montgomery West Boycotts. And if you want to be honest, King was threatened by Jackson because he was now this young up-and-comer. And when King saw Jackson in the parking lot, knowing there had been conflict between them, he shouted, Jesse, Jesse, I want you to come with me to dinner. Before Jackson could respond, Kyle said, oh, Jesse already took care of that. Jackson was intending to go to that party, whether King invited him or not. King, not to be done, added, Jesse, we're going to Billy Kyle's and you don't even have a tie on. Uh, undeterred, Jackson, Jackson had on a, a turtleneck and a jacket, kind of the style of the time. Undeterred, Jackson quipped back, the prerequisite to eating is an appetite, not a tie. And King laughed and said, you're crazy. King then turned his attention to Ben Branch, the band leader who was beside Jackson, and said, Ben, I want you to play Precious Lord for me tonight. It was one of King's favorite songs and would have known that it had been originally written by a hymn writer crying out in grief over the deaths of his wife and son. King said, sing it real pretty. And Branch assured him, I will. Before King could say another word, a bullet hit him and he fell. It was 6.01 p.m. Precious Lord Take my hand. Not many people knew that only days before Dr. King chose to return to Memphis to be in solidarity with the sanitation workers' strike, he had been offered what was once his dream job. Lead me on, let me stand. King had been invited to take a much-deserved one-year sabbatical as the interim pastor of New York City's Riverside Church, renowned for its commitment to social justice. If he had accepted that offer, he would not have been in Memphis that night. I am tired. I am weak. I am worn. On April 4th, 1967, precisely one year before his assassination, Dr. King had ascended to that historic New York Riverside pulpit and had preached his most radical sermon to date, Beyond Vietnam, a time to break silence. Through the storm, through He declined the offer of a sabbatical because it would have taken him too far from the front lines of the struggle for social justice. Lead me on through the light. If King were alive today, he would have celebrated his 91st birthday this past Wednesday. I'm always shocked to remember that he was only 39 years old when he died, two years younger than I am standing before you today. 
Take my hand, precious Lord, lead me home. In the words of a contemporary community organizer, King's leadership remains a North Star to this day. He taught us not about a sterile civility, but about a revolutionary love. When my way grows dreary, King showed that we can engage in fierce conflict, marching, sitting in, boycotting, going on strike, shutting it down, and still love <coughs> and respect our opponents, even those who hate and seek to harm us. We do this not because it is nice or comfy or proper. We do it because it is a powerful way to create social change. Precious Lord, lead me near. When King was assassinated, let us never forget, he was in the midst of organizing a multiracial poor people's campaign to confront what he called the giant triplets of evil, systemic racism, poverty, and militarism. If he were alive today, he would surely add ecological devastation to the list. Remember that King was killed prior to the first Earth Day. When my life is almost gone. King's legacy in this moment means to remember to lead with love, to disagree with mutual respect, and to put the suffering of those who are hurting most first. When King was killed in Memphis supporting striking black sanitation workers, garbage men, two of whom had been crushed to death in a trash compactor because of shoddy working conditions, he was seeking to help them fight for simple, basic dignity. Who is hurting the most in America today? There's no one answer. But a group that comes to my heart are the migrant children who have fled desperate circumstances only to find themselves detained in cages by our government, in concentration camps forcibly separated from their parents. At the river I will stand. And if you truly respect Dr. King and his legacy, ask yourself, what would he do now. Guide my feet, hold my hand. We must lead with love. Rather than assuming the worst in others, we must reach out graciously for the good in them. If King could live and die to build a beloved community of justice in which the segregationists who threatened his life might also be redeemed, what he called a double victory. We will win you over too, he said of his enemies. If King could do that, we can rise above the toxicity of this political moment to show what principled, generous, mature leadership with our eyes on the prize of political revolution looks like. For our democracy, for the climate and our planet, for the prospects of a just, multiracial America. As Dr. King said, we are confronted with the fierce urgency of now. Take my hand, precious Lord, and lead me home. Dr. King was taken from us too soon, but his legacy lives on. And it is our time now to continue the work to which he called us.
of building the world he dreamed about and that we can dream about and help co-create.